This week we're talking about two pieces by Sylvia Winter, both of which I find uh, immensely interesting and important, but also uh, not at all easy reads. If there's one thing we can say about Winter, it's that uh, we have to take on we take on a lot when we when we read her. Uh, part of what I think makes her work so complicated is that she deliberately uh, includes all of her sources. And by deliberately, I mean she puts them on display, she walks us through them, she cites them, she quotes them. She has a citational practice that I think is, uh, on the one hand, uh, deeply responsible, of course. I mean, anytime you, you have a rigorous citational practice, you're saying, here are my sources, here's what I learned from them, and here's how I'm putting them to work. Uh, but it also can make it difficult to read because uh, so much of her time is spent constructing uh, positions against which she argues or laying out positions that then she borrows a little bit or piece from. And that's not really a criticism as much as it is, uh, for me, a characterization of the experience of reading Sylvia Winter because it's not, uh, it's very different than reading uh, Fanon's uh, Black Skin, White Masks. You know, when we read uh, Black Skin, White Masks, we see Fanon as, as we can see what a stylist Fanon is. I mean, he really uh, he writes in that engaging kind of auto auto poetic way. Um, he evokes sources, but really makes them his own quite consciously and moves very quickly. We have an inversion of that with Sylvia Winter in terms of just the layout and format of her pieces. That is, they uh, work very slowly and deliberately. She is not a, a, someone who works with rhetorical flourishes. And uh, like I said, she puts all of her sources out there, gives them explication in the body of the text. But for all those differences in terms of the stylistic features and the sort of reader experience uh, features of Fanon and Winter, um, I think that uh, I feel confident in saying that Sylvia Winter is is... Fanon's greatest, uh, in, uh, the, the greatest inheritor of Fanon's legacy. I mean, she really put so much of his work to work in new ways. Now, in new ways for me is really interesting and has to do with this question of style and question of exposition and question of readerly experience. So I didn't just bring that up as a sort of opening reflection on you know, what it was like to read Sylvia Winter, although I think that's always interesting. But I really said that because what we learn when we think of Winter as, as uh, the inheritor of Fanon's legacy is that she goes back and, and writes into Fanon's key ideas so many texts that I think Fanon himself probably wasn't familiar with. And in doing so, embeds him in a discourse and tradition that gives, I think, these ideas real depth. Gives them real depth in the sense that I think historical uh, research, historical framings, uh, situating, in this case, the, the question of the human or the sociogenic principle, uh, situating that in terms of a long historical development of humanism, helps us understand more deeply what's at stake in Fanon's uh, rejection of history, his rejection of the past and of the present and embrace of a pure future. We don't have that 
hyperbolic, evocative style in winter. What we get instead with winter is the real groundwork of Fanon's claims. And also, to be honest, uh, you know, not to be honest, but uh, to make sure I'm clear, that doesn't mean that Sylvia Winter is somehow doing Fanon's work, rather that she inherits some imperatives for Fanon, especially around what I think of as Fanon's uh, modernism, this desire to tell the one big story about the human person. And in doing so, revising what we mean, if not outright rejecting and reinventing what we mean by the human. Uh, and, the, you know, a new humanism, as we talked about a bit in class, and that occupies so much of Fanon's last work in uh, The Wretched of the Earth. So in doing so, in, 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 in doing that groundwork, Winter is also able to uncover, I think, some subtle distinctions and some key uh, qualifications and recasting of Fanon's ideas that help them, for me, make more sense in a late 20th, uh, 21st century context. One of the things I will say about Fanon is so much of his work is deeply and deeply linked to and rooted in his moment. That mid-century moment was unlike any other. It was a moment of colonialism, but everyone is on the cusp of independence. And what that does in terms of the energy and vitality of thinking is all by itself a really, really interesting thing to me. So. So I love that about Fanon, um, but it also is a very particular moment. And Fanon is part of, of him dying so young and writing Black Skin, White Masks at such a young age. I mean, remember he composed it when he was 26 years old and it was published when he was 27. So just in terms of time, he hadn't settled into the kind of deep textual background that Winter has by the time she writes the uh, Toward the Sociogenic Principle essay and then Unsettling the Coloniality of Being, Power, Truth, and Freedom essay. So all of that as a kind of context, uh, I want to say just a few things. This probably be on the short side of, of, of uh, one of these process pieces. But first of all, one of the things that strikes me as really interesting about winter, I'm sure I'll bring this up in class maybe a few times, is especially unsettling the coloniality of being essay, but also towards the sociogenic principle. One of the things that always really stands out for me is that Winter is, it's like she writes these essays that are so long that they're not essays, they're not book chapters, but they're also not books. Um, and sometimes I think like unsettling the coloniality of being essay could easily have been a short book. Give it more detail, break it into a couple of, of, of sections, and you have a short book. Uh, but instead, what we have is an enormously long essay with a lot of detail, and we have to make sense of that. So her form is really interesting to me. She's one of the few people who writes in this long, long essay format that is closer to a short book, but also not a short book. In the Tarsus Sociogenic Principle essay, one of the things that I find most interesting and what I want to focus on here and, and certainly start when we talk in class is that part of what I understand Winter to be doing is giving an account of something that Fanon himself doesn't give an account of but needs in his own work. 
When we were reading Black Skin, White Masks, one of the things I wanted to underscore and really emphasize was the sense in which Fanon's description of the world, the descri his description of being, right, so his ontology, is total. And it's total in the sense that anti-blackness animates every corner of being for Fanon. That's part of what generates his apocalyptic tone that the world has to be destroyed in order to become new again, right? That's his radical thought, literally pulling something up by its roots and planting something new in its place. One of the problems with that comprehensive and uncompromising vision of being is that at no point can you say how Fanon himself, the author, could account for himself. How can Fanon account for Fanon? That is, how can Fanon in his ontology account for a kind of being that he is, someone who is able to step outside of being itself in order to see it from a different perspective? The one place where I think he, he flirts with that is when he talks about the zone of non-being. And when he talks about the zone of non-being, he's really talking about, you know, uh, being outside being because you are not even allowed entry into being. That is the depth of anti-blackness, that, that black people don't even belong in being, right, except as white people. So black as black ends up in the zone of non-being. But how do you account for your ability to speak from, critique from, and think, most importantly, think from that zone of non-being? I think winter is part of her 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 aim in the toward the sociogenic principle essay is to answer that question in rehearsing this notion of the sociogenic and phenom first of all she clarifies what is a, a not an altogether clear concept in phenom's work so i wanted to read them back to back so that you would have that we would have black skin white masks uh, you know at our fingertips to see, oh, this idea of sociogeny is in that book, but what does it mean? Now Winter is giving us a full exposition, a full exposition that I think is absolutely faithful to Fanon's text, but is also Winter's own idea. And, and that's, that's what great thinkers do, is they take somebody else's idea, give an exposition, and in that exposition, the idea becomes their own. Winter definitely does that in the Toward the Sociogenic Principle essay in rereading Fanon. But what sociogeny does and what her treatment of that problem does is paint Fanon into that corner or paint any radical thinker into a corner where if you concede that being itself is generated through the sociological, that is through social forces and hegemonies, then you have to say, well, doesn't that mean that the subject who speaks against, right, the revolutionary subject, who speaks against the order of being is also sociogenic, right? Produced by all of those same social forces and hegemonies. In which case, if that's true, that subject would be fundamentally and really, I would say, fatally compromised by the, um, by the sociogenic, that it's not a pure position. It's not a position outside being, it's embedded inside, inside being. And if it's embedded inside being, it's tainted with the same problems of anti-blackness as all those other things that Fanon critiques like Pigeon, like Creole, the racism and culture essay when he talks about blues and jazz. 
and the you know quote great Negro music of America, right? All of those things are sociogenic, or features then of anti-black uh, world, anti-black being. So why is Fanon himself as a speaker not that same? So in the treatment of Fanon and sociogenesis, I like that Winter really uh, paints him into a corner and then tries to think outside. And that's her turn to um, all of these, these very strange, uh, you know, st not strange if you do philosophy of mind and Anglo-American philosophy, but for someone working in post-colonial or anti-colonial philosophy and theory like Sylvia Winter, a very strange group of figures to bring in. Um, you know, David Chalmers, Thomas Nagel, and others. But what he, she's trying to get at there is to develop a generalized theory of consciousness or conscious life that stands outside, at some level, stands outside the sociogenic. At the same time, what she's doing is saying, well, there is this naturalistic account of consciousness that positions subjectivity in some measure or another, right? It's a small measure, but in some measure or another positions subjectivity outside the social and its hegemonies. That naturalism, the actual biology of the body, she is also suggesting through these thinkers, is deeply impacted by the sociogenic. This is something that uh, Fanon absolutely, in terms of his psychiatry, was onto. The way our psychiatric... Uh, the, sorry, our, our psychological structures are themselves deeply impacted by the sociogenic, and therefore our brains, therefore our um, you know mechanisms of thought and thinking. But the sociogenic principle wants to find that idea of conscious experience in order to say this element of conscious experience is the thing that makes it possible to talk about what it's like to be black, not on white people's terms not on the terms of an anti-black sociogenic world and its, and its expressive culture or its theoretical culture. Instead, how you could speak in, with some sense of, uh, if we want to call it, sense of authenticity is going to have to come from this idea of conscious experience that gets developed in the second half of the essay. And that ends up being what we might call a pure faculty. A pure faculty in the sense that it is is purely a capacity. It doesn't have any actuality or content. Because it doesn't have any actuality and content, we can't say what the mind or conscious experience is, is structured to experience, right? What is structured to think. Rather, we can simply talk about the capacity. That is, that Fanon is... Um, uh, that Fanon's position or anyone working like Winter in the horizon of his position is actually able to think outside an anti-black world as a black thinker in this or from this position of pure capacity and pure possibility. I will say one of the things that I find interesting, and this is this is John's reading of this, is that I I I like that Winter goes in this direction. I think raising the question, how can you justify or explain the presence of the author in the author's own text and constellation of ideas is one of the Achilles heels of most theory, especially theory that has a pessimistic dimension. But when I think about that 
that problem of accounting for the uh, accounting for the the possibility of the author or the actuality of the author because Fanon did write this right so so there's something problem that's solvable there we just have to figure out how to solve it in doing that I like that winter turns to uh, contemporary philosophy of mind in the Anglo-American tradition. I think that's totally enigmatic. No one saw it coming, and it offers really interesting resources for those of us who are thinking in an anti- and post-colonial context. But I do think in Fanon's own work, and especially in Black Skin, White Masks, there is his textual predecessor, who's Jean-Paul Sartre. And Jean-Paul Sartre, what's interesting to me is that Sartre, in you know, who thought about the nothingness of the subject, uh, nothingness at the heart of the subject. Um, nevertheless, in that nothingness is an absolute freedom. That is, the self doesn't have any content. What is in the self is what is acquired through the freedom, which is the pure capacity of the ego. And, you know, I think Fanon very much draws on that without getting into it in terms of exposition or any detail or any revision. So for me, to say it again, what I find so interesting about Winter's reading is that she uses a sociogenic principle to paint Fanon and those of us thinking in Fanon's uh, horizon, you know, like she herself, paint us into a corner and then say, how can you account for yourself if we take the sociogenic principle this seriously? Now, I've thought myself into this corner. Philosophy of mind is what gets us out. And that's perfectly compatible with what I'm saying in terms of Sartre as a source. But what's interesting to me is that it gives a different mode of legitimation, right? Because for Sartre, it's a phenomenological account. It's just describing how subjectivity experiences freedom, experiences the world, and experiences itself. Now, the philosophy of mind that she draws on, so much of it is naturalistic, so it's really connected to the physiology of the brain and its relation to mental states. And so walking through that as murky as it is and dense as it is and even underdeveloped as it is is part of me that's like, this could have been a short book because there's so much more to say. But that that however murky, quick, um, and and dense those sections are, I think it's really important that she's trying to establish the possibility of anti-colonial critique or critiques of anti-blackness from outside the world of anti-blackness and give that outside some sort of content. Now on this question of subjectivity, there's also the question of the human and that's what's at stake in the Unsettling the Coloniality essay. Again, an incredibly long essay, I think it's something, uh, something like 75 pages, 70, 75 pages. Um, and I don't care. You know, I remember saying this one time and somebody was like, well, there's not that much on the page. Like this, a lot on the page, actually. Let's, let's dial that back. But here we see really winter moving in the opposite direction in trying to theorize the human. In Toward the Sociogenic Principle, it's rooted in Fanon's text and then moves to contemporary philosophy of mind. Unsettling the Coloniality of Being, etc. essay is an historical piece. And it's an historical piece that does a thumbnail sketch. Again, would have made a really interesting short book. Does a thumbnail sketch of the history of the development in the West or white Western Europe 
the development in the West of, of a notion of the human or what she just calls man. She has man one and man two. This is one of her central ideas. And this idea of man one is really the expression of how, um, uh, how the religious tradition right, understood you know, the, the, the meaning of, of the human as the, the one who is capable of having a relationship with God. Or with the Messiah, right? With Jesus. So these are Christian ideas, right? So when she says religious, she really means Christian. I think that's super important. There's a Christocentrism that dominates the Atlantic world. That's really interesting to me, and she definitely falls into it. I think it's actually an issue, but um, that's a sort of secondary uh, consideration for me right now. But when she talks in there about when she talks about man one and man two there's this interesting thing about you know man one is that description that begins as the human as religious and the religious human who's capable of having a relationship with god right an authority right something that legislates over us that's what god does god legislates over us tells us you know, what to do, what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, what is real, and what is illusion. That is simply secularized in Renaissance humanism and the, the, the movement out of the Middle Ages, right, where the religious worldview rooted everything in this notion of God. What replaces God is, is reason or rationality. But that's still in the context of man one. And the thing about man one is that man one is, is both religious and secular. It can be both at the same time. It can be one or it can be the other. And historically, it goes from, from man as religious to man as secular or man as rational. And in that movement to man as rational, what's in, uh, from man as religious, we actually get this interesting, uh, for me, this really interesting uh, insight or window into the crisis of colonialism and slavery. And the crisis comes from man as religious, the capacity to have a, a relationship with God, which, you know, Bartolome de las Casas used that definition of the human to abolish slave, the enslavement of indigenous people in the Americas. Because what he wrote back to the Spanish authorities, the Spanish crown, but also the church and political authorities, was that indigenous people in the Americas were starting to, to convert to Christianity. And if they can convert to Christianity, they've displayed their human, that they're human. And when they display that they're human, we can't enslave human beings, right? And so it's a simple equation Right, simple observation by Las Casas that changes the entire Western Hemisphere. It changes the entire Western Hemisphere because now you have to find a new group to enslave. Right, This is an economic practice. Everybody wants to maximize their profit. And that begins the transatlantic slave trade uh, from Africa. And part of what happens in that transatlantic slave trade is that... Um, is a shift in man one to the rational to say, you know, we're not going to basically, we're not going to make that mistake again where we say the enslaved um, can be enslaved because they can't convert because then all that has to happen is that these enslaved people, 
from Africa start converting and now you have a crisis of slavery again. What you can have, uh, rather, is this idea of, of, of man as man one as rational creature. And so you can discern who does and does not have this feature of rationality. Needless to say, this is a completely um, uh, instrumental our uh, characterization of the human, right, as rational. That's the, the thing that the, you know, that that white Western Europe uh, absolutely just played with in order to always find ways to exclude the colonized and the enslaved. But what happens as as you know, modernity moves on from from the 16th and 17th, 18th century into the 19th, is this new, um, you know, sort of late slavery. Uh, era and uh, sort of high point of global colonialism is this notion of man too. And man too is a really interesting shift because what man too is um, it combines scientific accounts of the human in Darwin, which is an evolutionary theory, right? Uh, Darwin's uh, evolutionary theory and also the, the, articulation of the human as a fundamentally political creature. So politically, that's what the human is. Or sorry, uh, the human is as a political creature, but also the human is as an evolved creature, right? scientifically demonstrated in Darwin's sort of overarching uh, uh, notion of evolution. So what you can then offer is an account which is wholly rational, wholly scientific, not of who does and doesn't have reason, not who does and does not have the capacity to have a relationship with God, but instead you have to say who is more evolved, right? There's a monogenesis uh, theory that, that is completely compatible with this, started in the late 18th century by Immanuel Kant and taken up by so many thinkers after him. And monogenesis is this idea that we are all uh, evolved from the same or you know, generated from uh, the same stock, like a plant. But every plant also has its varieties, even if it has the same root stock. And that idea of the same root stock of being human, right, does not exclude the possibility of enslavement and colonial domination. And in fact, you have this supervening or or you know second level justification again, which is this notion of evolution that some humans have evolved to dominate and some have evolved to be dominated. Both are humans at some fundamental level. <coughs> That's why it's man too. <coughs> because there is still the possibility, right, of everybody being human and enslaving and colonizing at the same time. So in that way, there's this hyper, uh, she calls it an over-representation toward the human after man, it's over-representation. It's trying to think, you know, what can we talk about as the human if we don't want to use the model of man one or man two? What is left? And that this is the challenge she's opening us to. In opening us to this challenge, she's arriving in many ways where Fanon arrives in the conclusion to Black Skin, White Masks. This question, you know, where do we go with all this critique of how we've understood the human, how we've understood our lives together in an interracial space that's so fraught and violent and exploitive, 
right? How do we actually think about the human person differently such that it is not, you know, rational creature or monogenesis with fundamental differences uh, of evolution that naturally portend, you know, subjugation or domination. And that remains in this essay an open question and is something that I want to to talk about in class, obviously. But I like this, you know, what she, she says, and this is on uh, page 320 of the Unsettling the Coloniality of Being essay. She says, and after just a whole series of, of characterizations, says the above reformulations were all part of the then intellectual struggle to redescribe both the human and its human activity outside the terms of the description of the human on whose basis the owners of landed wealth had based their hegemony. So <clears throat> that need to redescribe the human is at stake in every phase of, of empire. The shift from the religious to the rational, that's a phase of empire. That's the effect of Las Casas. The move from, from um, the rational human to the evolution and evolutionary difference, that's a response to emerging natural science, but also these crises of seeing, you know, you can teach enslaved people how to read. You can teach Africans how to read. You can teach South Asians how to read. You can give them, you know, teach them math and science and they become rational. But then you need a second, you know, you need a next phase, not a second phase. You need a next phase. What's the next phase of development of describing a human in order to, to enforce, in this case, those hegemonies of, of colonialism and of empire broadly? That's man too. So the real question then is not how do we think the human in light of new uh, emerging forms of hegemony, but how do we imagine the human without hegemony? How do we imagine the human without domination and subjugation as not only a feature of life, but as the sort of North Star of inquiry, right? That man one and man two, these things that are very familiar to us, that to be human is to be capable of a relation to God, to have evolved, to have reason. Right? All of these languages we have for distinguishing what is what makes being human a human. Winter has now shown us in this unsettling the coloniality of being essay, those are all linked to the expansion of empire, and they are inseparable from them. Those are not theories that fell from the sky. Those are theories that came about because certain kinds of hegemony needed justification. And so the real task of thinking, and this is where I'll conclude, the real task of thinking that winter is bringing us to, it's not giving us an answer, but is bringing us to, the real task of thinking is thinking about how to conceive the human, how to conceive humanism without hegemony being the North Star, without hegemony structuring our subconscious and conscious approaches to the problem, and instead framing that notion of the human with an absolute and total emancipation.